John is a memorable character in the scriptures, perhaps one of the most memorable. If he were around today, I like to imagine him driving around town in an old beater. The back of his car would be plastered with offensive religious bumper stickers like turn or burn or repent ye from your sin or beware the coming wrath of God. John's a pretty extreme guy. He's the Bible-thumping relative that you don't really want to invite over for Christmas dinner, because once he gets going, there's no stopping him. I have noticed that John never makes it into the uh, traditional Christmas pageants. It turns out that uh, we'd rather not be called a brood of vipers on the night before Christmas. But truthfully, no Advent season is complete until we've had an opportunity to be yelled at by John. It's his special job, after all, to prepare a people who are ready to meet their God. John the Baptist. What do we know about John? Well, first of all, we know that he was the long-prayed-for son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The good news of his birth was announced by the angel Gabriel while Zechariah was at his post offering incense in the temple. The angel told Zechariah that Zechariah's child would be special, that the Holy Spirit would fill him, and that he would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The coming of an Elijah figure, an Elijah-like prophet, to prepare the way, this was foretold in the Old Testament book of Malachi, and according to Gabriel the angel, John's the fulfillment of that promise. Elijah's prophetic mantle will be placed on his shoulders, and that makes John a prophet. What's a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks for God. A prophet is someone who knows God's word and applies God's word in the present. I like to, if the, if, if, if the Lord is a shepherd, then I like to think of prophets as the Lord's sheepdogs. They are sent out to bark the sheep back onto paths of righteousness. They're sent out to round up the sheep and encourage them to return to the pen of the good shepherd. And they warn the sheep what will happen if they don't. From his birth to his untimely execution at the hands of Herod, John lived out this prophetic vocation. Jesus called him the greatest prophet to ever live. John lived kind of a, an eccentric life. He didn't drink. He didn't settle down or start a family. He lived out on the outskirts of society in the wilderness. There he wore clothes made of camel's hair and he lived off a diet of locusts and wild honey. He spoke and applied God's truth without fear of the consequences. He called people to repentance. And that, in a word, I think, is the core of John's preparatory ministry. He called people back to the center. He called them to turn from greed and to embrace generosity, to turn from lies and to embrace the truth. You see, John believed that that judgment day 
was imminent. He believed that the Lord's anointed servant was coming soon, and that when he came, all the crooked roads would be made straight, and all the rocky ways would be made smooth. The Old Testament prophets referred to this day as the day of the Lord. They spoke of a day when God would come to right the wrongs, to judge the wicked, to refine the world with fire. And from an Old Testament perspective, this day of judgment, this day of the Lord, it was salvation in a way. It was deliverance for Israel and the world. No longer would the world be ruled by unjust tyrants, but the Lord and his righteous servant would rule, establishing justice and peace forever. John understood himself to to be the one who was called to prepare the people for this day, the day of the Lord. And that fact, I think, can help us understand his message and the urgency with which he ministered. How do you prepare a people for this day of justice? How do you help them get ready for the incoming wave of righteousness? Well, you warn them, really, about what's coming down the pipe, and you call them to turn, to get ready, lest they get sideswiped by the acts of God's justice. You may have noticed that John doesn't mince words in his sermon. He doesn't try to build a connection with his audience either through jokes or personal stories. In a way, it's almost like he doesn't want them to be there at all. I mean, his first words to the crowds that are coming out Uh, to be baptized by him are, you brood of vipers, right? Who warned you to flee the coming wrath? The axe is already at the root of the tree, and every tree that doesn't produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, and what's that? What's that you say? You, You say you have Abraham for your father? Well, what's that? God can make children of Abraham out of these rocks. This isn't uh, seeker-sensitive preaching, you might, might say. But the people are attracted by it, interesting, interestingly enough. They stream down towards the Jordan in droves. Many of them even wade into the water to receive John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it wasn't like John was preaching on some busy street corner in Jerusalem. I mean, this guy's out, out into the wilderness He's a 10-hour walk from Jerusalem. So people would have had to have packed an overnight bag in order to get yelled at by John. And I wonder, what, what drew them? What about his message, his call? What, what attracted people to it? Many, maybe the people were tired of, of the watered-down teaching they were receiving in the synagogue. Maybe they were inspired by the prospect of the Lord's return and and saw clearly their need to to realign their lives and get ready for this coming day. Or maybe the people were just happy to have someone who was brave enough to call a spade a spade and not beat around the bush. You know, for the last two years, I've been um, following the Jordan Peterson phenomenon uh, with... um, curiosity. I've listened to hours of his lectures. 
Uh, Peterson, uh, perhaps as many of you know, maybe not, is a, a rather controversial figure. He's frequently maligned by the press, most of which is unfair in my opinion. But for those who don't know him, Jordan Peterson, he's a psychologist from the University of Toronto and he rose to fame in 2017 after speaking out publicly on some proposed legislation in Ontario. This landed him in hot water uh, at his university and uh, with the public, but it also made him really popular. And his YouTube channel went from having a few thousand people uh, subscribing to like millions within a matter of weeks. So sensing the moment, Peterson decided for some reason to do a public lecture series on the book of Genesis in Toronto. And for 20 plus weeks, he sold out a theater in Toronto and people flocked from all over southern Ontario to come hear him talk about Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau. Many, many churches in Toronto are closing down. There are plenty of empty seats in the pews. But here a secular university professor starts lecturing on Genesis and people show up. Peterson's quite uh, brash. He's kind of harsh. He calls a spade a spade. He tells you, sort out your life. Get your stuff together. Life is serious business. And people are attracted to it. Why are they attracted to it? In a way, he, he calls people like John the Baptist to, to repent, to choose responsibility over personal freedom, to put the world back together again around them, starting small, starting with your own room, and then work out from there. Many, of course, were repelled by Peterson's style, but so many more were attracted. Last year, he sold out theaters all over the world, bringing this message of personal responsibility and repentance, telling the stories from the book of Genesis. What, why are people attracted to this? Why would they fork over 40 bucks to have Peterson yell at them for an evening? Why? Perhaps deep down, we know that life is actually serious business and that there are consequences to lying, to avoiding responsibility, to hiding from the truth of reality. People get it. People get that life is serious. They feel that their actions can lead them to terrible places. They know that there are consequences to avoiding, to, to, to lying. And sometimes they're thankful that someone has the courage to tell them what they already know but seek to avoid, to speak the truth. It's attractive. It's certainly not a nice feeling to be called a fruitless tree that's about to be thrown into the fire. But if it's true, wouldn't you want to know while there's still time? I'm, I'm sure that some were turned off by John. Maybe they came down to the Jordan, but halfway through the sermon thought, that's it, I'm out of here. But many others came and they waded down in the waters to receive the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is the word they needed to hear. And so cut to the heart, they begin to ask John questions like, what must we do? How should we get ready? And John has an answer for them. He says, 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn from evil. Start doing good. If you have two shirts in the closet, give one away to someone who doesn't have any shirts. If you have two loaves of bread in the freezer, give one away to someone who doesn't have any food. Some tax collectors came out to hear John's message too, and, and they asked the same question. What, what, what must we do, they asked. Well, says John, don't collect more that, than you ought to. Some soldiers were there, and they asked John the same question. What must we do? And to them, John replied, don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In other words, according to John, the best way to prepare for the day of the Lord is to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. When the crooked ways are made straight, you don't want to be found in your walk-in closet wondering what to wear, especially not when the world is filled with people who don't have any clothes. And when the rough ways are made smooth, you don't want to be found extorting money or bearing false witness against a neighbor. It will not go well for you. I like how John makes this call to justice very personal. He puts justice in a way within reach. John doesn't step back and, you know, critique the system and, and the injustice that's, that's in politics or anything like that. No, he turns to people, to individuals, and, say, and says, you, put the world right around you. Seek justice where you are situated. In your work, in your house, put the world to right. And I wonder what John would say to you in your current life situation. How would you apply justice to your profession or to your stage of life? I mean, if you're in the trades, what would he say to you? Don't cut corners. Don't charge more than you ought. And if you're in the teaching profession, what might he say to you? Teach with integrity. Be prepared for class. If you're a student, what would he say to you? Learn well. Treat your teachers with respect. If you're in leadership, what would he say to you? Don't use your position for personal gain. If you're retired, what might John say to you? Whatever your situation, how could this call to justice, to seek what is right, what, what might it look like in your life? Remember that all of us live our lives before the face of God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with him. That's how we prepare. Now, John fully expected that God was going to establish justice in the land through the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah whose sandals, John says, he's not fit to untie. In John's imagination, this Messiah is going to be a decisive king and judge. So it's not really surprising to hear that John is a little confused later on in his ministry uh, and maybe even a little disappointed with Jesus and how Jesus has uh, started his. While in, while in prison, he even sent a few of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. He, he sends disciples to say, hey, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? This doesn't make sense, Jesus. I've been preparing the way. I've been telling people about the axe that is coming and you're not picking up the axe. What's going on? 
In some ways, Jesus looked and sounded like the one that John expected. I mean, he taught with authority. He casted out demons. He healed the sick. He challenged the Pharisees on many occasions. And he even went into the temple once and started overthrowing tables. There's the decisive king, the just judge. But not once did Jesus pick up the acts of God's justice. In fact, in the end, he did just the opposite, didn't he? At the end of his ministry, he stood in front of the human race as the acts of God's judgment fell upon him. All the wrath that God, all the wrath of God, God that John warned the crowds about, I mean, it fell upon Jesus, didn't it? John couldn't have predicted it, but Lord knows that this is what we needed most. Because in the final analysis of things, who among us could remain stand, standing before the incoming wave of God's justice? Who among us could remain standing on the day of the Lord? None of us are, are straight or smooth enough, not as, enough, not as smooth as, as we need to be to survive that day. John expected Jesus to bring God's justice, but instead Jesus absorbed God's justice so that we might receive grace and be clothed in his righteousness through, his finished, through faith in his finished work. But it is true also that there is a judgment day coming. The scriptures testify that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. The catechism says that those who are found in him, found in Christ, need not fear that day. For the one who comes to judge is the same one who offered himself to the judgment of God to remove the whole curse from us. It's good news. And this Advent, I think we need to remember this. The incredible news that the Messiah first came as a lamb to take away the sins of the world. He did not come with a winnowing fork in his hands. Instead, he endured the fires of judgment so that we might be reconciled with God. But John's message of repentance and bearing fruit is still relevant for we who live between the first and the second coming of Christ. For a day is coming when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, the crooked roads will be made straight and the rough ways will be made smooth and injustice and evil will be forever eradicated from God's good world. And I wonder, what does it look like for us to be a prophetic community whose life together is meant to prepare the world for this incoming reality? In a way, I think the early church modeled this so well in their life together. What did they do? They devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. They held out Jesus as the hope of the world. They looked forward to his return, and as they waited, they shared their food and their resources. Those who had two fields sold one off to support those who had none. Those who had closets, closets full of clothes gave to those who have, had empty closets. And the baptized by the Spirit congregation of Jesus infiltrated the city of Jerusalem 
and then the rest of the world with truthfulness, honesty, and integrity. They acted justly, they loved mercy, they walked humbly before their God. That's how we prepare the way of the Lord. In our culture, Christmas is a time to accumulate, to step back from reality and escape with food and drink. But John the Baptist reminds us that Christmas is not a time to accumulate or escape. It's a time to give, to engage, to bear witness to God's reality through word and deed. So let us live sober and alert lives this Advent season in gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ and in expectation of his return. Not collecting, but giving. Not complacent, but expectant. Not serving ourselves, but serving God. Amen.